This episode interrogates Western government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. As we continue to learn, other entities like the WHO and the Chinese Communist Party are also culpable for their actions, including the withholding of information and outright fabrications. There is plenty of blame to go around, so please know that this episode takes aim at just one part of that culpability matrix. I hope you enjoy. Our governments have been telling us a story that because nobody expected this pandemic, they've had no choice but to enact unprecedented measures and collectively spend trillions of dollars to protect our health and economies. It turns out, this story is a lie. Welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. In response to COVID-19, our Western governments, in the name of you and me, have undertaken record-breaking stimulus emergency spending and quantitative easing, a fancy way to avoid saying printing money, all to extend a lifeline to our economies in lockdown. Today, the federal government unveiled a massive $82 billion aid package to help Canadians cope. In these extraordinary times, our government is taking extraordinary measures. I signed the single biggest economic relief package in American history. Uh, Yesterday announcing an even more radical package to help the self-employed, promising to pay up to 80% of their average income over the past three years. This package, together with the other initiatives that have been announced, sees the government's support for our Australian economy announced over the last 10 days at $189 billion, or as the Prime Minister said, around 10% of GDP. Astronomical amounts spent on cash handouts, loans, bailouts and wage subsidies. But in order to justify this, our politicians and media class have told us a lie. A lie that the unprecedented and unexpected nature of this pandemic has called for unprecedented measures. A lie that our governments are doing the best they can and nothing else could have been done. A lie that, it turns out, has been extremely effective. Popularity for major world leaders has skyrocketed during this crisis. So I want to explore a question that so few in our trustworthy media class have been asking. Could this pandemic have been expected? Could our governments have taken earlier, more decisive action to avoid the health and fiscal Armageddon we now find ourselves in? Basically, what I really want to ask is, are our governments criminally incompetent yet have somehow avoided this criticism through institutionalized deception? Let's break it down. The standard line of defense from our governments has been coronavirus was an unforeseen event. How could governments have known, let alone prepared? World Health Organization officials saying that the coronavirus outbreak is evidence the world is not prepared for a pandemic. This came out of nowhere. Nobody would have ever thought a thing like this could have happened. I think we're seeing right now that the entire world was unprepared. Pre-corona, governments around the world were routinely advised on the need to prepare for pandemics. You can go back as far as 2005 to hear President Bush. It is vital that our nation discuss and address the threat of pandemic flu now. There is no pandemic flu in our country or in the world at this time. But if we wait for a pandemic to appear, it will be too late to prepare. 
In the landmark book, The Black Swan, published in 2007, Nassim Taleb not only predicted the global financial crash of 2008, but also foresaw something similar to the coronavirus. I wrote in The Black Swan that the virus was going to take over the planet, uh, would travel on British air and perhaps Air France. Whereas 600 years ago, the problem we had with the plague, the Great Plague, was traveling on camels and horsebacks, and it took, uh, you know, it was 30 miles a day maximum. Since then, Taleb and others tried to warn governments all over the world. So in uh, 2013, the government of Singapore <laughs> invited me to discuss such a possibility, and they were really ready for it. How well it prepared are other governments, would you say? Uh, not at all, <laughs> I would say. Uh, definitely not the Chinese government uh, early on. And very unfortunately, not the UK government. It's still, still, it's not prepared. They would say that there has been planning going into this and they're going through different well, stages which they've been preparing for in their contingency we, planning. We looked at the epidemiology models that uh, were being used and they're very primitive, uh, extremely fragile to assumptions. And I would say have probably the same sophistication as the models used by the Bank of England before the crash of 2008. You guys are, are late in the game compared to, say, Korea or Singapore or even China. And, and the later, the more you wait, the, the, the higher the costs. And in case your government says that the coronavirus is a black swan, in other words, something that could not have been predicted or prepared for, it was not a black swan. It was a white swan. And I'm so irritated at people who say it's a black swan. We have had black swans. September 11 was definitely a black swan. This was a white swan. And it's no excuse for companies, corporations, not to be prepared for that. And definitely no excuse for governments to not be prepared for something like this. And it was not only Taleb, but back in 2015, Bill Gates was onto it. If anything kills over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war. Now, part of the reason for this is that we've invested a huge amount in nuclear deterrence. But we've actually invested very little in a system to stop an epidemic. Let's look at Ebola. The problem wasn't that there was a system that didn't work well enough. The problem was that we didn't have a system at all. And then Gates makes a prescient observation that... So next time, we might not be so lucky. Uh, you can have a virus where people feel well enough while they're infectious that they get on a plane or they go to a market. The source of the virus could be a natural epidemic like Ebola or it could be bioterrorism. And so there are things that would literally make things a thousand times worse. In fact, if there's one positive thing that can come out of the Ebola epidemic, it's that it can serve as a early warning, a wake-up call to get ready. If we start now, we can be ready for the next epidemic. In September 2019, in the first annual report, the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board found that the world is at an acute risk for devastating regional or global disease, epidemics or pandemics that not only cause loss of life, but upend economies and create social chaos. And in October 2019, a report by the Global Health Security Index determined all 195 countries it evaluated were insufficiently prepared to handle a pandemic, 
literally every single country this report looked at was unprepared for a pandemic. (sighs) And those are just the general warnings that are sounded all around the world. If you look at the US specifically, 2017, just before Trump's inauguration, Obama's outgoing Homeland Security advisor gathered Trump's incoming officials and said, The nightmare scenario for us, and frankly to any public health expert that you would talk to, has always been a new strain of flu or a respiratory illness because of how much easier it is to spread. Not being able to leave our homes is a type of nightmare scenario, so they definitely got that one right. In 2018, on the 100th anniversary of the Spanish flu, Luciana Borio, then the Director for the Medical and Biodefense Preparedness at the National Security Council, told a symposium that the threat of pandemic flu is our number one health security concern. Turns out that the very next day, National Security Advisor John Bolton had shuttered the NSC's unit for preparing and responding to pandemics. No department, no pandemic, right? Then in 2019, the US intelligence community in its worldwide threat assessment warned, we assess that the United States and the world will remain vulnerable to the next flu pandemic or large-scale outbreak of a contagious disease that could lead to massive rates of death and disability, severely affect the world economy, strain international resources, and increase calls on the United States for support. And if that wasn't enough, it did the same in 2018, 2017... 2016, 2015, 2014, yep, you guessed it, 2013, which stated, this is not a hypothetical threat. History is replete with examples of pathogens sweeping populations that lack immunity, causing political and economic upheaval. And it's not just the US that I'm going to put in the firing line. In Canada, a 2006 report co-authored by Theresa Tam now Canada's chief public health officer, what Dr. Tam explained yesterday, put together a playbook for how to deal with pandemics. The report also anticipated there will be shortages of the materials and the supplies needed during the pandemic period. Therefore, a consistent 16-week supply, in other words, two pandemic waves, was the minimum needed. Hmm, I think I prefer 2006, Dr. Tam. In 2010, a federal audit flagged problems with the management of Canada's emergency stockpile of medical equipment. In 2018, an assessment of the H1N1 swine flu outbreak a decade earlier raised concerns about ventilator shortages, the understatement of the century. And as for the Public Health Agency of Canada, when it issued its 2019-2020 departmental plan last year, one of its stated priorities was pandemic preparedness. The goal was to have the national emergency stockpile better aligned with current needs and the operating environment and to improve how the agency collects, analyzes and uses public health intelligence to facilitate early detection, identification and monitoring of emergency global health events. The department set itself a goal for when it wanted to reach that target. The goal, which was never realized, would have been April 2020. And it's not just the US or Canada. Other Western countries are no better. In the UK, Chief Scientific Officer from 2012 to 2019, Ian Boyd, after taking part in simulated exercises for rare events like pandemics, said, We are poorly prepared. And as for my own home country, Australia, in 2014, an Attorney General report of the National Medical Stockpile warned that it may not meet the more intense demands of a severe pandemic. And while Australia has a health management plan for pandemic influenza, 
Critics have argued that it is vague and doesn't address how many decisions should be made. And so when our leaders say, This came out of nowhere. Nobody would have ever thought a thing like this could have happened. Or when they try to deflect responsibility with, I think we're seeing right now that the entire world was unprepared. It's, as my nonna would say, bullshit. It's bullshit. And if the general warnings didn't sound frequently enough, earlier this year, countries were giving ample notice on the coronavirus specifically. It started in November last year. American intelligence officials warned the Trump administration as far back as late November that coronavirus could be a, quote, cataclysmic event. Then on December 12, the first case of the novel coronavirus is officially detected in Wuhan, China, but the Chinese Communist Party does not disclose this for weeks. On December 31, China notifies the WHO that it has several cases of pneumonia. Four weeks after the first infections, China notifies the World Health Organization of the outbreak. In early January, the US intelligence community warns Trump that coronavirus could be a, quote, cataclysmic event, that Chinese officials appear to be minimizing the outbreak, and that there is a global danger. In Canada, the medical intelligence cell begins producing detailed warnings about COVID. A Hong Kong epidemiologist notifies that the virus is spreading much more quickly than the Chinese government is admitting, and is spreading asymptomatically. Mind you, this is early January. By January 6, CDC Director Robert Redfield offers to send a CDC team to China, but China rejects this offer. On January 9, China publicly identifies new pneumonia-like virus. On January 10, Chinese officials announce the first known death from the new coronavirus, but states there's no evidence of human-to-human transmission. The first death which occurred on January 9 was not announced until January 11. After January 11, the data on deaths and confirmed cases plateaued and the numbers had not changed at all. I believe that the local authorities concealed the truth from the public due to political concerns. By the third week of January, US diplomats in Wuhan return to the US and alert the State Department that the public health risk in Wuhan is significant. On January 18, Alex Cesar, US Health and Human Services Secretary, tries to speak to President Trump about the outbreak for the first time. President Trump ignores this warning. Then, on January 20, the United States and South Korea each announced their first case of COVID-19. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China. Chinese authorities confirm the virus can spread person to person. Epidemiologists start publishing papers that, to the effect that the coronavirus would cause a worldwide pandemic. This is almost two months before the WHO's classification. January 22nd, Wuhan gets shut down. It was um, 22nd, 22nd of January. That was the turning point. Just bad news started coming in. It started with the Chinese official news saying that it's getting, getting much worse than, than they expected. And then all of a sudden, I think it was the next day, 23rd, I remember, I woke up quite late, like 10 a.m. And suddenly, and my, my dad just told me, oh, we can't go out now. We can't go out. We can't get out of our apartment. Then comes January 23rd, which is a pretty big day in hindsight. Singapore bans all inbound flights from Wuhan, China. The WHO releases a statement that includes transmission rates, human-to-human transmission capability, and severity of the virus. We know that this virus causes severe disease and that it can kill. We know that among those infected, 
one quarter of patients have experienced severe disease. We know that there is human-to-human transmission in China. Now, this is huge because, as experts tell us, this is all the info needed to assess the high risk of COVID. And bear in mind that this is January 23rd, at least two months before some really restrictive measures became enacted. On January 24th, there's the first handful of confirmed cases in Australia and other places around the world. We now have a confirmed case of the 2019 novel coronavirus in Victoria, the first case in Australia. January 28, Dr. Carter Mercher, a senior medical advisor at the Department of Veterans Affairs, emails dozens of his colleagues in government and at universities about the coronavirus. Here's a quote from the email chain. The chatter on the blogs is that the WHO and CDC are behind the curve. I'm seeing comments from people asking why the WHO and CDC seem to be downplaying this. I'm certainly no public health expert, just a doofus from the VA. But no matter how I look at this, it looks to be bad. Trump's trade advisor Peter Navarro warns the White House the lack of immune protection or an existing cure or vaccine would leave Americans defenseless in the case of a full-blown coronavirus outbreak on U.S. soil. This lack of protection elevates the risk of the coronavirus evolving into a full-blown pandemic. On the same day, the WHO calls COVID-19 a public health emergency of international concern. For all of these reasons, I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. One level below the pandemic warning. But then you still have world leaders downplaying the potential risk, such as Dr. Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, who said... For sure, in the general population in Canada, the risk is low. Definitely prefer 2006 Dr. Tam. In early February, the US, Australia, New Zealand and a few other countries start restricting entry to people from China. Meanwhile, in Canada, a later memo reveals that the Canadian authorities refrained from issuing quarantine orders to travellers returning from China's Hubei province due to insufficient resources. February 13, in something that clearly indicates that public officials knew something that the wider public did not know, U.S. Senator Burr sells stocks that are collectively worth between $628,000 to $1.7 million. Some of the stocks include stocks in hotel and tourism industries. Three other senators sell major holdings around the same time. Senator Loeffler's husband also purchases stocks in a major PPE provider four times in February and March. What the hell did these people know and why didn't they urge for immediate action? And it's believed that at this time, the coronavirus begins to spread in New York from Europe. Meanwhile, on February 24th, President Trump gives false assurances that the stock market is starting to look very good and the coronavirus is very much under control. Stock markets on this day declined sharply following the news of the spread of the novel coronavirus. Try again, Donny boy. On February 25th, a CDC director says that a severely disruptive outbreak is inevitable. The president's National Economic Council director, Larry Kudlow, is asked about Dr. Messenheyer's comments. We have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. The business side and the economic side, uh, I don't think it's going to be an economic tragedy at all. Hmm, I don't know, man. By late February, President Trump says that the virus, like a miracle, would disappear. Dr. Fauci says, There is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-by-day basis. 
Right now, the risk is still low, but this could change. Meanwhile, in Canada, as the virus was spreading across the country, top federal health officials were still busy with routine files. Between January 23rd and March 10, officials held talks with roughly a dozen different organizations, mostly about the federal budget. By early March, Dr. Major warns the Red Dawn email chain that the United States should have pulled all the triggers for NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions, by now. Just bear in mind, this is early March. They've had plenty of time. Then, by March 11, the WHO declares that COVID-19 is a global health pandemic. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. On the same day, Trump announces new travel restrictions from Europe. On March 13, Europe becomes the new epicenter. Trump declares a national emergency. On March 16, Canada closes its border for the first time. We will be denying entry to Canada to people who are not Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Trump announces social distancing guidelines. And then from this point on, most countries have implemented some form of social distancing lockdowns. But this is more than two months after China told the WHO, two months after people were warned of the global risk. Had our governments taken decisive action in late January, we'd have spent a fraction of the cost that we're spending now. Here's Nassim Taleb again. Had we spent the money or, or probably taken a hit uh, or given, you know, transferred the risk to the airlines who would have taken a hit, in January, we wouldn't be here today. The problem we have today is too much connectivity. They did not want to spend pennies in January. Now they're going to spend trillions. So, and, and if you delay more, you're going to spend even more. We don't know much about this disease. This is not a regular, uh, uh, it's not the flu, okay? It's much more untractable. Uh, uh, we, we don't know enough about it. That, therefore, it should be extra cautious. So when our leaders say this, this came out of nowhere. Nobody would have ever thought a thing like this could have happened. All this. I think we're seeing right now that the entire world was unprepared. Just know that it's complete and utter. So those are all the warnings, both the general ones that we had, as well as the coronavirus-specific warnings. And, you know, perhaps had we been better prepared... Perhaps there would have been no need to lie about other things that could have helped us in this crisis. Say the lie about the benefits of masks. Since this crisis began, U.S. health officials have repeatedly said that healthy people should not wear masks unless they're caring for someone who's sick. We are not in a situation where anyone needs to be concerned. No one should go around wearing and wasting face masks, please. Does wearing a face mask do anything? No. So face masks, are, face masks are fairly useless. And a particularly remarkable example is from the US Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, on February 29, who said, Seriously, people, stop buying masks. They are not effective in preventing general public from catching hashtag coronavirus. But if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. The initial public health rationale was that masks offer limited benefit to the community because, one, community transmission was rare, even though this quickly changed. Two, you could only spread the virus if you were symptomatic. This understanding has also quickly changed. And three, masks offer limited inward protection. In other words, they don't protect you from other people. We'll see in a bit that there's actually evidence to the contrary on this point as well. 
And so you should only wear masks if you're unwell as a way of protecting others. Now, this has always struck me as suspicious and contradictory. On the one hand, we're told that doctors and nurses must wear surgical masks when treating potential or confirmed COVID-19 patients. Yet, somehow, everyone else should not. Sounds suspicious to me. Now, without weighing in on the science of the virus's transmission, which is probably a bit beyond me, at the very least, the government's message has been inconsistent with its own evidence. According to the Australian Health Management Plan for Pandemic Influenza and its relevant summaries of evidence, documents meant to guide Australia's pandemic response, five studies examined face mask use in conjunction with hand washing and noted significant reductions significant reductions of secondary attack ratios or influenza-like illness incidents. They go on to point out that it's unclear whether this was due to hand washing or face mask use, so why not recommend both? Elsewhere in the evidence, it says, the likelihood of PPE reducing transmission in the community will be higher if it is adopted early and alongside other pandemic mitigation measures. If PPE is to be considered for the whole of the community in an effort to delay or reduce the size of the pandemic, this is most effective if initiated when there are a few cases. Now, if this finding isn't good enough, this is also confirmed by the Joanna Briggs Institute evidence summary on community mask use. So just to make sure you're following how messed up this is, the evidence that the Australian government has collated and it uses for its own purposes is unequivocally saying that masks in conjunction with hand hygiene reduces transmission. So why then are we being told not to wear masks? One reason authorities cite is there's little or no evidence that wearing masks alone reduces transmission. Putting aside the actual evidence that masks in conjunction with hand hygiene are effective by their own reports, the claims of little evidence or no benefit are idiotic because they treat absence of evidence as evidence of absence. In other words, just because something has not been proven to work yet, that doesn't mean it won't be proven effective in the future. As even the experts say, this will evolve. To give you an example of how ridiculous it is, it's like saying that because your new car has never been in a car accident to test if your seatbelt works, you can conclude there's no evidence that wearing a seatbelt will save your life. It's pure insanity. And not only that, but it flies in the face of the precautionary principle, which calls for extra precaution when you don't understand everything about the new virus, as is the case here. Now, the really frustrating part about this is that the Australia's response was precautionary at times throughout the pandemic, for example, with banning flights from China in early February. But on masks, they seem to be waiting for community spread to escalate before recommending masks. Why are you waiting for more people to die before you change your guidelines? It's insanity. And the crazy thing is, the government's claim of limited benefit is not a widely held view from the scientists researching the issue. In favour of masks, there's the argument that it covers up asymptomatic spread. The head of the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention told Science Magazine that the big mistake in the US and Europe, in my opinion, is that people aren't wearing masks. Many people have asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic infections. If they are wearing face masks, it can prevent droplets that carry the virus from escaping and infecting others. There's the fact that masks have contributed to success in Asian countries. Jeremy Howard, a research scientist at the University of San Francisco, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post highlighting data from COVID-19 success stories in Asian countries such as South Korea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, where everyone is wearing masks. So I've analyzed 38 scientific 
scientific papers that have looked at the relationship between using masks and uh, the transmission of uh, COVID-19 and similar kinds of viruses. And they all tell the same story, which is that wearing a mask can decrease transmission by up to 50%. And also some studies showing masks might actually protect you more than they protect others, contradicting the message that masks are only good at protecting others. So if at the very least the debate is still open, why wouldn't you take a precautionary approach and recommend mask use? Well, of course, they say some masks may provide a false sense of security and if used incorrectly this can actually increase transmission. But it's funny how the same people who are making this argument never present any evidence of this actually happening. In the evidence summary for the Australian Health Management Plan for Pandemic Influenza, it states, the literature review did not identify any studies relating to this issue. Hmm, I wonder why. And it's strange that these same people never invoke the false sense of security argument with public health issues like seatbelts. Try to imagine these people telling us not to wear seatbelts in our cars because they provide a false sense of security. So if we know that one, masks are effective for healthcare workers, two, community mask use in conjunction with hand hygiene has been proven to reduce transmission using the government's own evidence, and three, if at best the case against mask use is that there's limited evidence of effectiveness, why then have our authorities desperately tried to avoid recommending community mask use? Short answer is they failed to stockpile enough masks and outsourced most of the manufacturing to China. Here's Australia's deputy CMO. If we had unlimited numbers of masks, I think it would be important to have a conversation with the Australian community. And Dr. Fauci in the US. There was always a feeling that there's not enough masks, so you got to prioritise them to the healthcare workers and to those who are infected. But given the situation that we might have enough masks for everyone, I think there's some rationale that we should utilise them much more than we do at the present time. According to the AHPPC, as the epidemiology in Australia changes, there may be justification for the broader use of PPE, but this needs to be balanced against supply considerations. Fancy speak for, we don't have enough masks. Piecing this all together, number one, it's an absolute outrage that our health experts have been lying about the potential benefits of masks, calling civilians wasteful for wearing them, all to cover up their stockpile fuck-ups. The second point is, by refraining to recommend mask use, not only did they potentially cost lives, but they killed off the incentive for private companies to manufacture masks to address the shortage. And most importantly, community mask use aside, the fact that our healthcare workers don't have enough PPE is absolutely horrifying. We're asking our frontline staff uh, to go in essentially wearing cargo shorts and a pocket knife. Melbourne surgeon Sushil Pant is one of thousands of health workers across Australia feeling increasingly anxious after being told supplies of masks, gowns and surgical gloves are already running low. The number one risk factor now is if you're a healthcare worker. And I don't know how we can ask our staff to continue to go to work without saying to them that we have all of the gear and we will continue to work with you and, and produce as much as we can in a wartime effort. Sure, the cost to stockpile enough PPE for healthcare workers and even Australians would be high, but it still pales in comparison to the cost Australia has already spent in this pandemic. And to think it wasn't until the 11th of March 2020, a full two months 
after they were warned of COVID when the Australian government decided to increase Australia's supply of PPE and pharmaceuticals held in the National Medical Stockpile. So just to recap, to make sure you're following at home, governments didn't prepare for pandemics in general, they didn't prepare early enough for COVID, and they lied to us about masks to cover up their own asses. And if you think I'm being too critical, our governments are doing the best they can, no country has flourished. How about the country that the WHO refuses to recognise? Would the WHO consider Taiwan's membership? Hello? Would the, would the I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let me, let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. Right, because, because I'm, I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well, on Taiwan's case. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've already talked about China. And, um, you know, when you look across all the different areas of, uh, of China, they've actually all done quite a good job. So with that, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting us to participate. And, uh, and good luck as you go forward with the battle in Hong Kong. As of recording, Taiwan has undeniably had one of the best responses to the coronavirus. As of April 14th, with a population of 24 million, Taiwan had only 393 cases and six deaths. While its economy has contracted and its government spent money, in per capita terms, Taiwan has spent a fraction of the amount spent by most other developed economies. And all of this has been achieved without mass lockdowns and relatively little economic interruption. According to Timothy Sly, a Canadian epidemiologist, surprisingly, many businesses are open, restaurants are operating, and children go to school. The Taiwanese approach is one of careful and intensive monitoring and surveillance, and it seems to be working. So what exactly has Taiwan done? On December 31, when Chinese officials notified the WHO that China had several cases of pneumonia, that day, I repeat, That day, the Taiwan Centers for Disease Control began monitoring passengers who arrived in the country from Wuhan. Government officials boarded flights from Wuhan as soon as they landed, monitoring passengers for symptoms. Now, this was about a month before countries like Australia and the US did anything remotely similar. But it didn't stop there. Less than a week later, the Taiwanese government began monitoring people who had traveled from Wuhan since December 20. Suspected cases were screened for 26 viruses, including SARS and MERS. Passengers displaying symptoms were quarantined at home and assessed whether medical attention at a hospital was necessary. Again, this was something like three weeks before anything similar happened in the US or Australia. In mid-January, Taiwan sent a team of experts on a fact-finding mission to China. With permission, even though Taiwanese-Chinese relations are less than stellar, according to a Taiwanese government representative, they didn't let us see what they didn't want us to see, that our experts sensed the situation was not optimistic. Now, again, this was about a month before the WHO secured permission from China to complete a fact-finding mission there. Then the government ramped up safety and health protocols even further. 
By late January, Taipei had established a central epidemic command center, centralizing policy measures to protect public health. On the 26th of January, Taiwan became one of the first countries to ban flights from Wuhan. Now you might be wondering, what was their response to masks? Whereas countries like Australia lied about the need for masks, around the same time, late January, the Taiwanese government banned the export of face masks and ensured they were affordable by capping prices at about 17 cents each. By late February, Taipei had distributed nearly 6.5 million masks to primary and secondary schools, as well as after-school institutions, plus 84,000 litres of hand sanitizer and 25,000 forehead thermometers. And now, while most other countries scramble for masks, Taiwan is, believe it or not, donating masks to other countries. Huge respect to the Taiwanese. So what happens to travellers in Taiwan? If you have been to high-risk areas, you're quarantined at home and tracked through your mobile phones to ensure you've stayed home during the incubation period. How about testing, you might ask? Well, in addition to testing most people they suspect have the virus, the Taiwanese government does not forget about people who tested negative for the virus. It actually retests these people to keep track of new cases. But the really beautiful thing about Taiwan, it's not just up to the government. Taiwan takes a whole-of-population approach. According to a school principal in Taiwan, more than 95% of our parents take their child's temperature at home and report it to the school before the children arrive. Regardless of what the government does, people have to take responsibility for their own health. Schools aside, apartment buildings put up hand sanitizer inside or outside elevators, and public and private buildings screen entrance for signs of fever to the point where you can expect to have your temperature taken several times a day. And even if a COVID-positive person gets missed on one of the temperature readings, it's likely they'll get picked up on the next reading. And even though temperature scans are unreliable, they're viewed as one part of a multi-layered approach. All in all, Thailand is a model case for throwing all possible tools at the virus, and it doesn't let any idiotic, evidence-based only approaches get in the way of monitoring, surveilling, and containing the virus, when waiting for that perfect evidence would only slow you down. Thailand is proof that the Western government's gigantic response and mass lockdowns demonstrated that they weren't prepared for this pandemic, and the public shouldn't be fooled into thinking otherwise. As a final example, let's run through a few hypotheticals here. Imagine that a CEO of a publicly traded company approves a factory which goes on to kill 100 workers. What are the chances that this CEO would keep their job? Virtually zero. Now imagine if a foreign army invaded your country, your military didn't have enough weapons to fend them off, and your prime minister says, This came out of nowhere. Nobody would have ever thought a thing like this could have happened. COVID-19 will go down as a colossal fuck-up in pandemic preparedness that, thanks to our incompetent media, Western governments will not be held accountable. This has been Hidden Perspective. Thanks for listening. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favour. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There. Too easy. See you next time.